Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. I will be reading Acts chapter 2 from the World English Bible. Now when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came from the sky a sound like the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Tongues like fire appeared and were distributed to them, and one sat on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability to speak. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under the sky. When this sound was heard, the multitude came together and were bewildered, because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Behold, aren't all these who speak Galileans? How do we hear everyone in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them speaking in our languages the mighty works of God. They were all amazed and were perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are all filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and spoke out to them, You men of Judea, and all you who dwell at Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to my words. For these aren't drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what has been spoken through the prophet Joel. It will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Yes, and on my servants and on my handmaidens in those days, I will pour out my Spirit and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. It will be that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved by God to you by mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did by him among you, even as you yourselves know, him being delivered up by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by the hand of lawless men, crucified and killed, whom God raised up, having freed him from the agony of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh also will dwell in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades, 
neither will you allow your Holy One to see decay. You made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may tell you freely of the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseeing this spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul wasn't left in Hades, and his flesh didn't see decay. This Jesus God raised up, to which we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted by the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit by my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let all the house of Israel therefore know certainly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. There were added that day about three thousand souls. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayer. Fear came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all according as anyone had need. Day by day, continuing steadfastly with one accord in the temple and breaking bread at home, they took their food with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to the assembly day by day those who were being saved. That is the end of chapter 2. You can probably tell from my voice that I haven't been well, in fact, haven't had a voice for a couple of days. But if I get close enough to the mic and I don't talk a lot during the day, I can get some recording done. So I'm going to give a try making some comments about Acts chapter 2 here. The Gospels all end with Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, which coincide with three feasts, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. And I went back and reviewed all of these because of running across Pentecost here. So the feasts are delineated in Leviticus chapter 23, Numbers chapters 28 and 29, and Deuteronomy 16. The clearest timeline to me when I was reading it was Leviticus 23, but other details are given in those other places mentioned. I don't claim to completely understand all about the feast, but New Testament history shows that Jesus was crucified on the date of the Passover. He then rose on the Feast of the First Fruits. 
Since exactly which day of the week these fall on varies with the year, it all had to be lined up for the year of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. I will link both to Chuck Missler articles and the Floyd Nolan Jones proposed timelines of events based on the text and the feasts. And I will say that it is very interesting that Jesus' first coming was fulfilled on the dates of the first three feasts, the Passover, the unleavened bread, and the first fruits. And then the church is given the Holy Spirit, or the church is born, some people say, on Pentecost, the feast in the middle of the seven feasts. So I can't help but wonder about the last three feasts being about the second coming, as has been suggested. It also lines up with the picture presented by Daniel's 70 weeks with the unspecified break between the 69th and the 70th week, which you can read about in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. Of course, we already know from Acts 1-7 that it isn't for them to know the times and seasons, specifically when the kingdom of Israel will be restored. Notice that Jesus' answer affirms that it will happen, and also remember that the prophecy to Mary speaks of Jesus sitting on the throne of David, and then in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 26 and 29 also talk about this. Anyway, all of that gave me a firmer understanding of Pentecost as one of the three feasts out of the seven that all Jewish men were required to show up at Jerusalem for. They were to be there to witness the crucifixion and resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel, which is the fulfillment of the law, the new covenant. The next feast that they are all supposed to be there for is the last feast per Deuteronomy 16.16. This is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, depending on the translation. In Leviticus 23.42, it talks about them living in these temporary shelters, recognizing that Yahweh brought them out of Egypt. Some of the rest of what I share for this episode will include things that were brought up by others in the discussion that we all had together for our time of Christian fellowship this week. And this is where I will also mention that because our fellowship is going to be going through the book of Acts, I will be interspersing my reading of Acts more on the timeline of when we do that kind of over a longer time period because we meet about every two weeks, and then I'll read other things in between there. So one of the things we talked about was how the disciples were only told to wait, not how long they were going to have to wait. However, because of the timing of the feast, we know they waited 10 days. Jesus was there for 40 days after the resurrection, and then there were going to be 10 more days until the Feast of Pentecost. But they had to just wait, not knowing how long that time would be. I suggest that Jesus didn't say how long to wait to avoid any suggestion of them acting in anticipation. The fulfillment on Pentecost needed to be clearly the working of the Holy Spirit in everyone's mind. The timing of when Christians receive the Holy Spirit is debated partially because of this 10-day wait. The disciples, all 120 it seems here, and the women, etc., apparently believed already in the atoning work of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. That's why they're around praying. But God wanted this initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit to be on a set day at a set place. 
Other accounts tell of people evidencing the Holy Spirit immediately after believing, before anybody prays for them. In particular, the episode with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 in verse 41 is an example of this. However, here in Acts 2.38, Peter simply says, all who repent in the name of Jesus Christ get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Tongues are not listed here as evidence of the Holy Spirit, even though they were definitely used as a powerful confirmation here during this time period. I won't get into a deeper discussion about tongues as a gift of the Holy Spirit or using tongues as prayer here, except to quote Mark 16, 17, where Jesus lists it as one of the signs accompanying those who believe. And those who are believing are seeking God in truth and repentance first, and any particular manifestation of that will flow from their faith. But what an amazing experience it must have been hearing this mighty sound, seeing the visual representation of the Holy Spirit on each other's heads, and having their unexpected languages confirmed by the devout Jews who were there for their obedience to the Feast of Weeks, as the Pentecost, um, the Feast of Pentecost is also called. It says the men from all these nations were dwelling there which often has a sense of permanence, but it is also used, for instance, when God says they are to dwell in the temporary booths in Leviticus 23.43. You will have to forgive me for losing track of various things I read while investigating the feasts and where all these men came from. Someone pointed out that all these devout Jews probably spoke at least some Hebrew, so there doesn't appear to have been an absolute need for all the different languages. I found myself wondering if, one, they understood their native languages better, as it talks about their own languages in verse 6, so that the message of the gospel was more clear, and then, two, it could have been also a display of God bringing the believers of nations together, kind of the opposite of the Tower of Babel. I will link to a helpful map of the regions listed here. These regions all noticeably encircle. It's like they radiate out from Jerusalem. You can also locate all of these places or regions by looking up the Bible Atlas by the American Bible Society that I've referenced several times. I think it was on maps 22 and 23 there. The languages at least represented the thorough spreading intended of the gospel, even if at this point they don't seem to understand it was also for the Gentiles. So all of these people who hear the languages are perplexed and some mocked, I don't think this mocking is necessarily an indication of who finally believed. It had to be confusing, if I'm honest. I completely understand anyone at first wondering if they were drunk. Being drunk was something they could relate to, they could identify. People got drunk. The speaking of the other languages like this was unprecedented. Then we see Peter step into leadership with the eleven. Since he is talking to devout Jews, he can go straight to Scripture. It is interesting that the passage in Joel encompasses all of the last days, all of the period from this time until the great and glorious day of the Lord when he comes. He is already talking about Jesus Christ coming back. I will also mention that the Joel passage does clearly include women as prophesying If you aren't sure how to square this with Paul's teaching on 
women being silent. Uh, the context in 1 Corinthians 14 is of keeping silent as prophecy is judged, which might be something that they had even said according to 1 Corinthians 11.5. For a very thorough discussion of this, I again recommend the Mike Winger series on women in ministry. But here, the they were all seems to include the women mentioned in Acts chapter 114, plus Joel mentions women twice. So unless you take 1 Corinthians 14.34 completely out of context, even of the whole letter to the Corinthians, not to mention of the whole Bible, it is not a biblical teaching that women are to be seen and not heard in church fellowship. So after this striking quote from Joel, Peter gets right to who Jesus Christ is and that all the evidence has been presented to them by how he lived, how he spoke, all the miracles he did, and they killed him. Remember, these are almost certainly the same devout Jews who had been there for the Passover. God determined to deliver Jesus Christ up to their lawlessness in order to work out their salvation. Peter doesn't soften things up. They have killed an innocent man, but he follows it up quickly with the resurrection and quotes from Psalms by David. Even though this is all very serious, it is also a path to joy, a joyful revelation. So I have to wonder if Peter is smiling when he says the obvious in verse 29, I may tell you freely, David is dead and buried. This also emphasizes the kingly heritage of Jesus Christ, confirming the promise of Jesus occupying the real throne on this earth at some, to- at some time. Verse 37 says they are cut to the heart. Their hearts that were just hardened a few weeks ago at the crucifixion. They were stubborn, and God held them stiff in that stubbornness to achieve his greater plan. And now he seems to have lifted that so they have a chance to respond to his message of mercy and grace. Peter gives them a clear, simple answer to their question of what they must do. And Peter tells them that what they must do is repent. Now, this do is not a do of works to to attain standing with God. This is a do of faith, as Romans 4, 5 speaks of. Repentance is not anything to earn anything. It's not even like putting a coin in a vending machine to get something out. It's like saying, I don't have a coin. I can't even get the cheapest snack, and I'm really hungry, and I'm going to die. So God, I recognize that, So I am leaning on the offer that you have given me. That's a very limited analogy, but maybe that helps. So Peter also explains exactly why they need to do this. For the forgiveness of sins. It's not so they can go to heaven. It's not so they can have purpose or be happy or any other things that are sometimes presented as the end goal of the gospel. Some of those things follow in various ways in both this life or the next, but what we need is forgiveness of sins. I want to back up a minute to this idea that they were cut to the heart because someone in our discussion made an excellent point that when Stephen was later giving, we'll talk about him in Acts chapter 7, I think it is, and the people, the Jews that are listening to him are cut to the heart, but their reaction with being cut to the heart is gnashing of teeth and anger and killing. So you can be cut to the heart and still choose how you respond to that. 
Next, I want to talk about verse 39. This is where Peter says, For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Some might say that Peter's words indicate the exclusivity of the gospel message, but consider who he is talking to. These are devout Jews. They still have a sense of being God's chosen nation. Peter is indicating here that the gospel covers more than that. From other places, we know that Jesus is going to be drawing all men. You can see John 3.14 and John 12.32. So his words in verse, Peter's words in verse 40 are also curious, where he says, save yourselves. Obviously, he is referring to doing this through the repentant faith that he has just explained. They have a choice about how they respond. Then you have verses 41 through 47, which are greatly abused by those recommending some form of socialism or communism. It can help to note that this is describing what they did in love in this initial pure birth of the church. There are not yet shirkers or false teachers or deceivers or immoral people infiltrating the church body. There hasn't been time yet. Unfortunately, even Jesus warns about this going to happen in Matthew 24:11. Jude speaks of it in verse 4, and Peter describes this at length in 2 Peter chapter 2. But here in Acts 2, verses 41 through 47, the potential for infiltration and perversion, etc., has not yet been recognized by evil men. So these people who have been born again share from what they own as they have relationship with other believers, and they see their legitimate needs. It doesn't say they sold everything. It just says they took care of needs. It also says they went to the temple and had favor with all people, and those things didn't last, as persecution will soon get severe. And it doesn't account for those who went back to their native lands. So yes, they are applying the spirit of the law, love your neighbor as yourself, but they are not being coerced. No one is forcibly confiscating their wealth for redistribution, and there is no central authority of the government of men doing this. They are just simply responding to serving their one and only true king. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey. 